Hi, hi everyone. I'm with Rick Doblin, my featured guest and someone I'm going to get to know along with everybody else today, which is always the delight of doing these podcasts. Rick is head of the uh, MAPS, many of you who listen because uh, you've listened perhaps to a little of Duncan, a little of Pete, a little of uh, some of the other podcasts which would uh, lend you to be open to the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Welcome, Rick. Thank you for having me today. I'm really, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, same here. So one of the first things I do with everybody that I do talk to is ask them to go back to their, all the way back, 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 to those first events or happenings that uh, really led to your transformation, where you started to see there was a world outside of what we were all handed back in the day as we were growing up, mm -hmm. a world that wasn't necessarily uh, attached to our minds and our egos and our senses, that there was something else available to us, perhaps even to get us to be a little bit more happy than we, we might have been. So can you talk about just a bit, you know, how you some of the things that really helped you to see into, uh, say, a new reality? Yeah, well, I guess what, what first pops to my mind is my bar mitzvah. <laughs> and so that, that's pretty far way back. And what happened at my bar mitzvah, I'm the oldest of four kids. And, you know, we're Jewish back thousands of years, as far as we can tell. Um, my grandparents... Um, you know, kept kosher. My parents both grew up in kosher homes. You know, they, they changed that. Um, my grandparents on both sides kind of relaxed that a little bit. But I was really anticipating that there would be some kind of, um, not confrontation so much, but some kind of communion with God of some kind of crystallized format during uh, and after my bar mitzvah. And so I think the first um, sort of puncturing, you could say, of the story that I was raised with was that um, nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I remember being in bed uh, the nights, the several nights after my bar mitzvah and thinking, all right, where's God? You know, where, where's this transformation into adulthood? This what, is happened? A, what happened? What <laughs> happened? Yeah, and then, then I started telling myself this story that a lot of people must have got bar mitzvah that same day, and God, it was going to take a while for him to get around to me, <laughs> that, that he had a big list like Santa Claus yeah. and the list of presents, but he couldn't do it all instantaneously mm -hmm. somehow. And, and then it was really about a week later that I started acknowledging that um, nothing was going to happen. And so my kind of conception of a crystallized energy that's God and around him is not God, that that that, that wasn't really maybe what I was going to grow up experiencing, that, that somehow or other there was an absence. And I think that absence um, was really healthy. I'm kind of glad that I didn't kind of trick myself into having some kind of uh, fake communion experience or so, um, or, or manufactured is a better way to say it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it was really that that um, opened me up to the possibility of other catalysts than organized religion 
for these kind of mystical connection experiences that I was looking for, that I felt I needed. Um, and then to go back even earlier, um, you know, I was born in 1953, and I have a lot of relatives that um, were um, involved in the foundation of the state of Israel. I have um, relatives that were killed, distant relatives that were killed in the Holocaust. And so I grew up very much uh, being educated about the struggles of the Jewish people and about um, sort of communal insanity in Germany that led to the dehumanization and the mass murder. And I grew up very interested in psychology as a result, that somehow or other that the factors that I needed to address in my life were not so much, you know, what kind of job am I going to get so that I can afford food and shelter, but more, how do I avoid being massacred by, you know, crazy people? And <laughs> I think as <laughs> so, you know, and, and as that evolved, you know, then, then, um, you know, I grew up during the Cuban Missile Crisis and the whole duck and cover education that we got in grade school about if there's nuclear weapons, you know, and, and I'd have all these fantasies about how I'd rescue everybody and the girls in class would love me because I'd be some big hero. And, <laughs> you know, somehow or other we survived yeah. the nuclear holocaust and, and I was, you know, a hero in my fantasy life. Um, but But that really, I think, terrified me also, not just about the dehumanization and loss of uh, scapegoats for Jewish people, but about the whole world incinerating through people's um, insanity, basically. And, um, and then came the Vietnam War. And here it was, um, I was in the last year of the lottery. Hmm. So I ha had a lot of thinking to do about um, how I would respond to that. And I felt eventually that I was um, very much reading a lot of um, Martin Luther King and Tolstoy and Emerson and Thoreau about nonviolent resistance. And so I decided to become a draft resistor because I do, um, I don't feel like uh, conscientious objector status doesn't really fit for me because I, I don't, I'm not against all violence or all war. I think sometimes you need to defend yourselves. So it was in that context that I'm very much focused on trying to understand psychological mechanisms that um, endanger everybody that I started new college of Florida in Sarasota, Florida, an experimental college. And that's where I came across LSD mm -hmm. in high school. I had really, um, sort of bought into the idea that LSD made you permanently crazy and that it had some profound, uh, effect that uh, altered your brain in such a way that, that you'd be fundamentally flawed, like a, um, you know, a flaw in something that once it's under pressure, it'll just shatter. Some, some kind of, you know, really, so I, I sort of grew up believing that, and it was really literature. I was quite shy as a child and ended up um, loving to read books, and my grandparents had a bookstore, and what, what started turning me around was a book that I read, and I was taking Russian in high school, really? and I was wanting, now this is the height of the Cold War from, you know, 67 to 66, 71, and um, I wanted to learn about the other. And my parents, uh, after my junior year of high school, um, they sent me to spend the summer in Russia, studying the Russian language, which is a bunch of other US high school students. Wow. And they also started me off on this whole underground career because they gave me a bunch of prayer books 
to give to the guys at the synagogue. And they said that the, in, in Russia that they were uh, criminalizing Jewish prayer books. So my parents sent me on this mission, sort of, and loaded up in my suitcase some prayer books. And so I was with about 60 other high school students. And I remember, um, this is sort of a classic kind of story, but I remember going for a walk on the uh, beach. We were outside of Leningrad with a Russian girl who was one of the uh, kitchen servers at the place where we were studying. And I had this conversation with her. I, I had halting Russian. And, uh, but it was just astonishing for me to realize that she wasn't this you know, horned enemy trying to kill me, that she was oppressed by her own government as well. And that um, it, it really helped me understand sort of the precursors to this mystical sense of unity, mm. that, that here was, you know, these people that are out to kill us, and, you know, we got to hide under our desks and this. And then, well, it was the government, a thin layer of the government that, that was fighting, but the people were just like me, and, and to be able to have that conversation. And so I ended up um, not only meeting her, but meeting a bunch of young Russian uh, kids who were in the underground black market, and they wanted to buy our jeans and our clothes and all that kind of stuff as symbols, because they didn't have the psychedelic 60s in Russia. It was all suppressed. And um, somebody in our group had um, uh, Abbey Road um, by, by the Beatles. And it was, um, so this is the summer actually of 1970. And it, you know, they wanted $100. The Russian underground people were paying $100 for it. So anyway, I made a bunch of move, money in the underground, donate, went to the synagogue, donated the, the rubles and the books to the, to the synagogue. And, um, and then in my senior year of uh, high school, um, this friend in class gave me this book to read, and I loved it. And I handed it back to him, and I said, this is a fantastic book. And he said, do you realize that part of this book was written under the influence of LSD? And I'm like, that, that can't possibly be. LSD destroys your mind. How could such a fantastic book be? written under the influence of LSD, and it was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by oh, Ken Kesey. <laughs> so, so that's what really started opening me up. And then when I went to, high, to college and I decided to take LSD, um, that was where I started getting these senses of um, a different way of processing information, of a different kind of consciousness. And for me, what, what it really did, I can't say that my first experiences were really you know, full-blown mystical experiences. I was too emotionally um, underdeveloped and immature. And principally what this series of LSD experiences did for me was um, just help me have feelings. I had these, some were intense feelings of fear, some were of, a, of, of going crazy, of letting go, or deep feelings of, of love that it really, I felt like, um, opened me up to the emotional world because I was too overdeveloped intellectually and underdeveloped emotionally. And it, it, there was something there that I felt was healing. And I also felt like um, that as a mirror of the world, we're all somehow mirrors of the universe and of the worlds that we grow up in. And I felt that as a culture, we had incredible technology that could destroy the world, but we didn't have the emotional, spiritual maturity to really handle it. So I kept doing these LSD experiences, even though they were painful, and um, and I would just be holding on, and I couldn't let go. And finally, I went to the guidance counselor at New College, and at the time, it's different than it is now. They're kind of going through a crackdown now against drugs on campus, which is a shame. But what was going on there was um, a more sympathetic 
era. And when I went to the guidance counselor and told him about my problems, he, he wasn't like, you should stop doing LSD. This is terrible. Get back to studying. He was like, this is, you know, he was like, this is very interesting. And in fact, um, there's a book that I think you might want to read. And he had a manuscript copy before it was even published of Realms of the Human Unconscious by Stan Groff. Oh. And that's where, so as an 18-year-old boy, um, just starting to experiment with psychedelics, um, also somebody came by campus with half a pound of mescaline. <laughs> and so I bought it all. <laughs> and uh, friends and I uh, you know, distributed it and, and, and used a bunch. So I, I had pretty good early experiences with mescaline and LSD. But when I read this book about the insights that Stan had about the structure of the unconscious based on his LSD research and in Prague, in Czech, Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia at the time, and then um, after the Russians came in and he escaped to the U.S. Um, and went to Johns Hopkins, I started really getting this sense of um, here was science looking at consciousness, acknowledging the spiritual experience, but looking at it from a lens that's more rigorous than... Um, I would say, you know, there, there's a certain lot of uh, things in religions you have to take it fa in, by faith. Mm -hmm. uh, like, for example, I'll just say that uh, there was an article a couple years ago. Uh, my dad is 89. He's still alive. Mm -hmm. And um, there was an article, maybe it was like 10 years ago, about how um, in a, it was a scientific paper published about how Moses, when he saw the burning bush, that that, that was, must have been a psychedelic experience. And so it was sort of talking about psychedelics in the Bible and you know they had some evidence about what the manna was, mm -hmm. and the manna might be some psychedelic thing. So I, I talked about it to my father, and I said, "Look at this! You know, some scientists are claiming that um, you know Moses did psychedelics and had this mystical experience." And um, he said, "Well, that's all and good, but in order to really buy into that, you have to believe in Moses." <laughs> <laughs> so there's not a whole lot of historical evidence about Moses. Mm which, you know, it's not surprising. It's a long time ago. But, but still, I felt that um, this uh, Realms of the Human Unconscious really clarified for me that this was sort of the bundle was the scientific evaluation of different states of consciousness, including the mystical state, but with the focus being therapy and healing. Mm. So it wasn't this abstract philosophy about uh, the structure of the, the mind or only. It was like, how can we use these things for therapeutic outcomes? Hmm. And that's where I decided at age 18 in the summer of, uh, well, yeah, right around the summer of um, 1972, that I decided uh, that I would drop out of college, that I would focus on trying to get emotionally balanced and that I wanted to be a psychedelic therapist and get psychedelic therapy and do psychedelic research. And that, that's sort of the genesis of oh, it. Amazing story. Wonderful. <laughs> so one of the dissecting lines that we have, although we don't know each other, I know of you, of course, is a man named Ramdas. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, talk a little bit about... Uh, some of the first thing you might have heard of what uh, Alpert and Leary did maybe uh, from the early 60s and in, in your recollections of that and how it might have influenced you. Yeah, well, it, it influenced me tremendously. And, and I've done um, long-term follow-ups to the Good Friday experiment that they did mm -hmm. and also Concord Prison experiment. 
Mm. So I focused a lot on their early work. But I think what what first um, really influenced me was, um, you know, be here now. Um, but I was a little bit um, put off by it um, mm. in, in the sense of, um, you know, this kind of criticism that a lot of people in India have gotten, that, that they're into individual spirituality and leaving the wheel of life, and there's not a lot of social justice and compassion built into it. There's a certain kind of selfish, I'm going to get um, enlightened, and then I'm gone. Yeah. And what about the rest of us? You know, <laughs> Opposite so, of the Bodhisattva vow there a little bit. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the Hinayana and Mahayana streams of Buddhism I'm aware of. And so I, I felt that there was, here was the struggle over the Vietnam War, and here's all of this political turmoil over civil rights and everything going on, and, and the you know, struggles with the Russians, and, and here's people going off to meditate on a mountaintop, and, you know, how, how does that relevant in any way at all? You know, and I, I could see that there was a relevance, but I didn't see the return so much. But I, but I did. So my, my first impressions were that this is um, kind of a spiritual approach. That, that's where with Stan Groff, that it was on therapy. So so there was kind of this um, healing ills. And I understand how meditation is supposed to calm and, you know, help people as well. But But that was just my initial impressions. And then once I started reading Stan, though, then I started reading... Um, the early work of Walter Pankey and the Good Friday Experiment. And that, that I think, was, uh, you know, the best thing that Timothy Leary did at Harvard. And Ram Dass and others were involved in that. And that was extremely inspiring to me. Because what, what they were... Um, 20 divinity students, they were all Christian divinity students, and you take them into a religious setting. This was a uh, Good Friday ex uh, service. The minister was Reverend Howard Thurman, who was Martin Luther King's mentor. Hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it was Boston University, and Martin Luther King got his Ph.D. at Boston University. And Howard Thurman was the minister there. And this was at the Marsh Chapel. And uh, actually, in, in front of the Marsh Chapel right now, there's a statue dedicated to Martin Luther King. Hmm. And um, so I started really looking at this, again, this scientific exploration of the mystical experience and started really trying to understand um, what Walter Pankey and Tim Leary and Ramdas did, which was the questionnaire to evaluate the mystical experience, even though it was based on a Christian set of symbols on Good Friday, the questionnaire was abstracted about the core elements of a mystical experience that could apply to anybody in any religion. So you didn't have to have an image of Christ on the cross to have a mystical experience during the Good Friday service. So I saw this was really, for me, this understanding. When you look back in history and you look at uh, Galileo and Copernicus and them being um, censored by the church for sort of um, using the telescope and getting things that were different than the church's point of view and then being censored and... Um, you know, Galileo dying under house arrest, Father Bruno being burned at the stake. Yeah. Uh, and actually, Father Bruno, I'll just say, as a, uh, you know, that, that in terms of, uh, you know, words of uh, rebellion, um, Father Bruno has, is one of my heroes. And, and when the Inquisition pronounced his death sentence, that he would be burned at the stake for science over religion, 
um, basically. What he said was to the Inquisition, the Inquisitors, he said, your fear at imposing this sentence is greater than my fear receiving it. Mm, wow. Because their whole worldview was, was being challenged. So um, this idea of this abstracted mystical experience that could point to sort of a shared uh, perception that people can come to from different religious traditions, and that in this experimental context, they demonstrated that um, nine out of the 20 people in the study had a fuller partial mystical experience, and eight out of those nine had the psilocybin. One had the placebo. So I, I felt like that was really the antidote, in a way, to those earlier fears that I have about people going crazy, dehumanizing others, genocide against people that they say are the other or less than human. Here was this possibility that you connect with this unit of experience, connects you to everything and everybody. And then you can't do this us and them projections so easily. It's because it's all us. So it, that's where I started really getting to understand a little bit more about Ramdas and about the political implications when mm. fully developed of meditation, of the mystical experience, that it's not just, you know, meditating on a mountaintop for one's selfish, you know, get off the wheel of suffering in life, but it was this breakthrough to this understanding of all of our essential unity, not just people, but people, animals, nature, everything. And that that I felt had incredible political implications. So now I started being able to wrap around my interest in psychedelics, my interest in the mystical experience, and my interest in social change and uh, political evolution. So during this period of 10 years that I, um, after I dropped out of college, I really focused on um, getting myself integrated. And I ended up building houses, getting grounded in that world, and reading books and tripping every now and again as I sort of built myself my personality built up so that I could handle the more um, challenging aspects of, of psychedelic experiences. And I also um, you know, read about the Concord Prison Experiment that Tim did and that mostly Ralph Metzner worked on that a little bit more than Ramdas, but Ramdas was involved in that as well. And what I noticed though is during this period of the 70s, after the massive crackdown backlash against the 60s, almost everybody went into looking, almost everybody who was involved in psychedelics went into looking at non-drug alternatives. There's a very much interest in, you know, meditation and, um, you know, fasting and, um, you know, Sufi dancing and all, all, all sorts of things that, that you could do to catalyze non-ordinary states of consciousness. And I felt like there was this, um, you know, sad reluctance, but uh, necessity to give up the sort of primary focus on psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't see that much in the world, but I felt like, okay, I'm going to continue to do that. I'm going to focus on trying to bring back psychedelics. And um, then I had um, opportunities during that time um, to be a little bit involved. I went to a talk that Tim Leary gave um, and, and I was extraordinarily disappointed because this was after he had gotten out of prison. Yeah. Yeah. It, it felt like he had been, um, he'd made a deal with, uh, the government that, that he would make a fool of himself if they let him out of prison to, 
Yeah, because he was talking about um, smile, if you remember, space migration. And it was like, let's leave the planet. And, you know, it, it just felt like, um, you know, and, and I, I remember getting a tape recording of a press conference where Ramdas and others denounced Tim for, including Tim's son, for turning other people into the police. And Tim, of course, claimed that he only did it to people that the police already knew about and he didn't add anything to hurt them. But, but so there was this kind of disillusion. I, I did... Um, get more involved with the Grateful Dead at this time and was, you know, very interested in those kind of, you know, celebratory experiences with bunches of people tripping at the same time. I was, you know, because I was influenced by Kesey at the very beginning, I, I was always more towards um, the Dead and Kesey and the Pranksters than Leary and Albert. And and the reason I would say is that um, the, you know, the psychedelic experience that, that, that Ramdas and others that they wrote Model, taking the Tibetan Book of the Dead and trying to use that as a model for uh, psychedelic experiences and the letting go, I felt that there was something about um, it's good to learn from other cultures, but that those cultural frames of reference really didn't resonate with a lot of what I grew up with or a lot of what other people grew up with. So I felt that of the psychedelic streams, uh, Kesey and the Dead we're reinterpreting psychedelics in terms of our own Western culture, you know, using music, but, but even in other ways that that was a more authentic. And I felt like that really did catch on more in the culture because it was more of our own culture. So that, that, and we trying to build our own cultural forms. So all of that was sort of where I was, mm -hmm. um, you know, ruminating as, and I was trying to read all the psychedelic literature and, Finally, I felt after 10 years, I was ready to go back to college. And um, in 1982, um, I had this tremendous opportunity. I went back to New College in Sarasota, Florida, where I dropped out before. And the first um, semester, um, there was a month-long workshop that Stan and Christina were doing at Esalen called The Mystical Quest. And I thought, how perfect of a way for me to start my college career again. And then I, I so I went there and I was um, devising a, a curriculum for what I should study to become a psychedelic therapist. And so I worked on that with Stan and others. And while I was there at Esalen, somebody came by, uh, a woman named Debbie Harlow, who wasn't in the, this month-long workshop, but she came by to Esalen and she had MDMA, you know, which I'd never heard of before. And so she started talking about MDMA and then she started talking about this underground psychedelic psychotherapy community that was using it in therapy and that had continued to work with LSD. So um, I don't know if you've had a chance, uh, you, you probably have read Journey to the East by Herman Hess. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of my absolute favorite books. Yeah. And, and um, I've used it actually to um, woo my wife. It's a great one oh. to read out loud to somebody. You know, it only takes a couple hours, super romantic in some ways. And, um, but, but basically the book is about how somebody is off on this mystical quest, this Journey to the East, and then he discovers that uh, one by one, people are falling away and he's not in touch with them. And he's the only one that's still going forward. And then it turns out that he's the one that's lost the way and that this journey to the East has continued and eventually he finds his way back. So I kind of felt like, um, like that, like I had thought that there was no underground psychedelic community, that it had all been obliterated by the backlash. And that here I was the only one, you know, still trying to, you know, read the books and make it happen again. And, and then I discovered, no, there's this whole community and I didn't even know about them. <laughs> and then, and then I felt like, you know, I had learned about LSD 
and really come to appreciate it right after the backlash and after the research was shut down. And then here I had an opportunity to learn about MDMA before it was criminalized. But because this was in the time of Nancy Reagan and Just Say No, yeah. it was, and it was already being sold as ecstasy as well as the code name Adam yeah. in the, the therapeutic, it was, the crackdown was inevitable. So that's where I blended my interest in psychedelic psychotherapy and got a little bit more involved in the political aspects mm. of the, protect MDMA. Yeah. You talk about uh, Journey to the East and some of the, uh, some of your um, reflections on um, Ram Dass and what he was doing and, and Leary and all of the experiments that they did in the early days. Uh, interestingly enough, Ram Dass talks about uh, a map. You call your organization MAPS. Yeah. But his whole reason for going over to the East that journey to the east, that famous journey to the east, was to find because acid just wasn't. He kept coming down, and he kept yeah, saying, yeah. "Okay, where there must be a map of consciousness, and somebody got to tell me about this." So I'm going to the east, you know. And he thought it was going to be on a, in, the Buddhists were going to give him the information, and of course he he ended up meeting Ninkaroli Baba and coming back. And I have to say. One thing, and uh, he said this too, I never would have been able, I don't think I would have been able to be there in the same kind of openness and deep, deep, deep grokking, another book from another yeah. era, yeah. Uh, yeah. with with Neem Karoli Baba, with Maharaji, we called him, without acid. And, yeah. I, and I would, and probably 98% of the Westerners, of which there's only a couple of hundred that went over and met this particular being, I would say the same thing. We just wouldn't have been able to grok that, to really, really come to a an under, a visceral understanding beyond any mind whatsoever. And then what you said about uh, how later on you realized the uh, the the way in which what the and Ramdas in particular is is the best example integrated that and brought it back to the West. There was yeah. a political action in there, yeah, yeah, and and very very much so. And the, one of the main things, and this hits on some of the things you've said in terms of the research that I've done, in terms of explaining most especially about MDMA, which, by the way, was the most recent psychedelic that I've done in the last uh -huh. number of years, right? Um, and I have this appreciation for it as as uh, you very much do for reasons, and you know we'll get into. Um, but it was his impulse to share in the unity of what yeah. it all is. He could not do anything else but share that. And that is one of the biggest things that we were all handled, handed down, ra rather, to, to share this in, in the West. And now Rick and I met at uh, SVN, which is Social Venture Network, a wonderful group, gets together and, and really tries to do social action from a heart place. I mean, that's my most basic uh, explanation yeah. of what, what they do. And we met there. And uh, that is just so much of what, uh, I mean, I've gone there because Ramdas can no longer travel because of his stroke. Yeah. And so I've gone there kind of as a representative, as the director of the foundation. And and I t and we have you know breakout groups and what do you do? Well, inner social action is <laughs> what we do and what we represent and very much it's a political action, 
and very much unless you have a peaceful heart there you can't have a peaceful yeah. world uh, you know all of that kind of a thing so i i really appreciate your uh, comments relative to the fact that eventually um there is an understanding that that it's not about going to the mountaintop and doing this for yourself and happily getting enlightened and you know, <laughs> this is not possible nobody who gets into that advanced uh, an inner journey uh, sees anything but what can I do for the my neighbor next to me? So, yeah. you know, I think that I just wanted to mention that. I think it's a, a terrifically important uh, point. I, I'd like to... Oh, oh, let, me, let me say one thing, yep. which is yep. that the actual, you know, um, name of MAPS mm. actually came from um, Ralph Metzner. Oh, really? Yeah, because Ralph wrote a book in the early 70s called Maps of Consciousness. And I, it was about different uh, Agni fire meditation and different kind of systems of um, either divination or spirituality. And I read that and I, I was influenced it, by it. And then Stan talked about maps of the human unconscious and you know the, the, the cartography of the unconscious. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to have the word um, psychedelic in the name of the nonprofit. Mm. And so I, I needed a word with a P in it. <laughs> So then I remembered maps and oh. uh, consciousness by Ralph, and and that's then I start thinking, okay, what are these other letters going to stand for? We, we got the P, and that, and then I like that idea of trying to, you know, help people understand uh, the territories that they could explore. Um, the the other thing I wanted to add was that uh, once I started college, and this was now again the middle eighties, um, I wanted to try to do. Um, a research project. Everybody at New College has to do a senior thesis. And I think that's one of the best parts. It's the Honors College of the state of Florida. And I wanted to do something with psychedelic research. And at the time, it was impossible to get permission. FDA had shut stuff down. It was shut, shut down all over the world. And then I went back to the Good Friday experiment. And Walter Pankey, who, who was the minister and doctor who got his PhD doing that, had died in 71 in a scuba diving accident. Mm. Oh, I didn't and know so that. I realized that from a, a perspective of psychedelic research, sometimes, particularly when you study the mystical experience, in the religious literature, what the, they call the fruits test. You know, what are the fruits of the tree? That's the real judge of your experience, is what does it do to you in terms of compassion, altruism? What, mm. what are the... Mm. The fruits of the experience. And so I realized that trying to do a long-term follow-up to the Good Friday experiment would be something that I could legally do because I'm not actually giving anybody any drugs. I'm just asking what they thought about an experience that they had roughly 25 years before. And that's really where I, I was sort of reaffirmed in my life this idea of the political implications of the mystical experience. I was able to, it's kind of a long story, but you know, it was the names of the people in the experiment were not known. Uh, Tim didn't have that list in his archives. Uh, there was no way to do it. They were at Andover Newton Theological Seminary and they didn't have a list of it. They didn't even have um, Walter Pankey's thesis, The Good Friday, that wasn't even in their library, even though one of the most important experiences and experiments ever with psychedelics and mysticism took place with their students. They had nothing even in their library about it. Hmm. Anyway, I, f I found their um, 
alumni books and I found who was in school at the time and wrote letters to everybody. Really? But I eventually, it, it took me years and years. Eventually I, I identified 19 out of the 20 people and interviewed 16 of them and went all over the country. And what I was asking them about was several questions. What was their experience, their view now to the experience back then? Did they have subsequent non-drug or drug mystical experiences that would inform whether they thought their psilocybin one was uh, valid or not, and then what were the implications in their lives? And that's where I found that many of these people, um, now this is during the rise of uh, you know Nancy Reagan, just say no. So if there was a cultural time when anybody had uh, incentives to sort of disavow their, their prior validity of a mystical experience, this was the time. But they didn't do that, they affirmed it, and they talked about how that unit of experience led them to participate in social justice movements of the time. Um, one of them uh, opposed the basing of the MX missile. Others got more involved in civil rights, uh, the anti-war movements, the women's rights movements. And they talked about how their fear of death was reduced as well by um, having these uh, sort of transcending time and space and having these experiences where you, you realize that you know, we're not just this historical blip, we're connected to billions of years of history. And so that for me is uh, that experience of spending several years working on um, the long-term follow-up to the Good Friday experiment, that led me to really appreciate the validity of the psychedelic mystical experience and the political implications. But it also, um, turned up something that I was shocked to discover, which is one of the people in the Good Friday experiment was so moved by the minister, Howard Thurman, saying, you got to tell people there's a man on the cross, that he ran out of the chapel and he started running down the street. And, and he was, you know, Houston Smith and uh, Tim Leary had to run after him and bring him back in, but he didn't want to go inside. And they actually gave him a shot of Thorazine. <laughs> And that was completely omitted from any of the reports about the experiment. Oh so I see the seeds of the uh, backlash also coming from Leary and Ramdas and Metzner in that there was an under um, emphasis and a complete attempt to uh, ignore, to hide the fact that psychedelic experiences can be very challenging and that they actually had what we would now call an, a serious adverse event. I mean, in the, in the clinical studies that we're doing with FDA, we have to monitor for side effects. Somebody that has emotional agitation that you tranquilize, that counts. You know, you, you can't just say, oh, you know, I'm not gonna say anything about it. FDA would um, throw out your data if you did that. You know, they would be, um, you know, the opinion that you weren't reliable. So mm -hmm. that's what I discovered. Um, the, the basic validity uh, you know, of the experiment was affirmed, but there was um, an underemphasis on the risks. And I think in general, Tim Leary was um, deserving of some criticism for being um, a cheerleader without sufficient uh, cautionary notes. Yeah, right. Um, can you talk a little bit about the qualities of MDMA? Okay, so I'll, I'll talk about the qualities of MDMA. Yeah. Um, well, uh, okay, so I'd like to say, okay, all right, so um, the first thing I want to say is that um, 
When I learned about MDMA was in 82. Um, in 83, I um, read a book by Robert Mueller, the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations. And it was a book called New Genesis, Shaping a Global Spirituality. And it was also about this um, view that um, the mystical experience, that um, mysticism is the antidote to fundamentalism, and that that's what we needed more of. And he said from his perspective at the UN that um, you know, that's for conflicts between nations, but a lot of the conflicts are between religions, and we needed this global spirituality. I wrote him a letter, and he referred me to a bunch of mystics from different religions. And since MDMA was legal, kind of the subtext was send him MDMA. So this is part of how I learned about the different qualities of MDMA. So I um, sent MDMA and worked with Brother David Steindelrost, a Roman Catholic monk, uh, Rabbi Zalman Schachter, a um, Jewish Orthodox rabbi, Vanya Palmers, and General Kudela, who were leaders of the Zen community in Switzerland and Austria. And they would be using um, more or less half doses of MDMA for facilitating meditation and then reporting back to Robert Mueller and to me. So what I've learned from that and is that you know there's a lot of differences that happen at different doses, and that's true with all different drugs. But MDMA quiets the mind, the um, sort of um, internal chatter that's always uh, always going on. Um, there's a certain quietness and acceptance and peacefulness and a presence. So in terms of be here now, MDMA is really a good <laughs> uh, facilitator now, of being here now with an open-hearted way. And what we know from neuroscience yeah, it's the be here now drug. <laughs> um, more so, I would say, than LSD or classic psychedelics even. Because there's so much going on in those experiences. Um, and what we know from neuroscience is that um, the part of the brain that processes fear, the amygdala, activity is reduced in the amygdala by MDMA. And the part of the brain that we think of as the uh, part that really makes us human, the prefrontal cortex, where we uh, put things in association, um, that activity is enhanced. And at the same time, MDMA stimulates serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, and also the hormones oxytocin and prolactin. Those are the hormones of bonding, of nurturing, nursing mothers, um, mothers as they're uh, giving birth. Um, so, what, what MDMA does is it, it produces a, uh, if I had to say anything, it would be self-acceptance. Mm. And there's such a peace that comes from that because we're constantly criticizing ourselves with this perfectionist streak that a lot of us have. That there's a, um, a self-acceptance that's incredibly joyous and a reduction in fear of difficult, challenging emotions or difficult thoughts. Uh, we find that in our work with post-traumatic stress disorder that people remember the trauma more detailed and more thoroughly under the influence of MDMA, that, that certain emotions were so turbulent and they're linked to these traumatic events that people have suppressed them so much they're not even in their conscious awareness. And under MDMA, these events sort of surface but people are feeling more calm and peaceful when that's happening. And then in their enhanced activity in their prefrontal cortex, they're able to really put it in association, separate it out. That was then, this is not now. 
And then in this process that we're learning about called memory reconsolidation, people store back the memory of the trauma. They've remembered the trauma better. And um, when they store it from a perspective of peacefulness, when they bring back the memory, they're able to um, recall it without the fear, but with a sense of peacefulness, like that's something again in the past. So we find that MDMA is really helpful for um, relationships also. I mean, we have a study with MDMA for autistic adults with social anxiety. Hmm. At, that's at uh, Harbor UCLA with uh, Charlie Grobe and Alicia Danforth. And what we're showing is that people who are autistic have a very difficult time connecting to others and even connecting to their own emotions. And MDMA facilitates that. People can read body language. People have gone out on dates for the first time in their lives after taking MDMA when they've not been able to do that. Um, we have another study um, in San Anselmo with a Dr. Phil Wolfson. It's with people with a life-threatening illness who are anxious about dying. MDMA helps people come to terms with their illness and with death. Um, MDMA is terrific for couples therapy. And for it makes people a better listener and it makes people, hmm. it somehow increases one's eloquence about where oneself is at. I mean, it's just because there's not a lot of the, um, the warps from um, fears and anxieties and self-protection of our ego. People can kind of explain themselves to themselves and others more fluidly under the influence of MDMA. And it, it doesn't really have the perceptual changes that LSD and uh, the classic psychedelics do. And it doesn't really... Um, or shall we say it doesn't threaten your life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't feel like you're going crazy or about to you die. die. <laughs> yeah. And it also has this, um, you know, sense where it, it's not dissolving the ego. I think the, the classic psychedelics are this sort of dissolving of your normal perspective so that you realize that we're going through the world with these filters that are like blinders on a racehorse. And, you know, we're just seeing what we need to do next for survival. And you take off these filters and then there's an enormous world bigger than yourself, bigger than your ego. And, and there's this terror about that, but a joy about that. And so that's how the classic psychedelics work. And we also know from neuroscience that um, the, uh, there's a branch of the, the, the brain's networks, one of them called the default mode network, that is somewhat similar to the ego structures, that activity is reduced in the filtering parts of the brain with LSD, with psilocybin, and you get this flood of material. That's where you think you're losing your, your individual ego, yourself, your life. You could be going crazy. Mm -hmm. MDMA is the opposite of that. It's like MDMA um, like cleans the window of perception between you and the larger world. And you feel so safe and comfortable in yourself that you can see that we're just this tiny speck on this enormous historical drama. And so it's something where um, a lot of people do report mystical experiences with MDMA. So in our research, and, and I would say that the classic uh, conclusion of the, the research from the 50s and 60s with LSD and of the modern research with psilocybin and LSD is that the depth of the mystical experience is correlated with the therapeutic outcome. So in terms of working with people with even Ibogaine or a peyote for addiction or LSD for um, helping people, we did the LSD study with people with life-threatening illnesses, 
that uh, nicotine, you know, psilocybin for nicotine addiction, psilocybin with cancer patients, then all of that modern research, there's a, and now the questionnaire too is built on the one that uh, Walter Pankey created with Ramdas and uh, Ralph Metzner and Tim for the Good Friday experiment. That's what we use now all these years later really? in the research. Same questionnaire. Really? Wow. Modified, yeah. And modified very, very slightly. So it's the depth of the mystical experiences correlated with therapeutic outcome. What we find with MDMA, and this is the distinction with psychedelics, is that there are a surprising number of people that report mystical experiences with MDMA, but that they are not correlated to therapeutic outcome. So our approach in a therapeutic context with MDMA is a non-directive approach. It's, it's about responding to what emerges in people's consciousness at whatever order or rate that it emerges and then helping them to um, sort of um, address it, open up to it, understand it, express it. And there's a little bit more in the classic work with LSD and psilocybin uh, therapies that you're trying to help people have this depth of the mystical experience. So I think that helps to describe what MDMA really does. Mm -hmm. it, it grounds you in yourself so much that, that there's a, a joy and a peace from that, but then you can kind of see the wider world in a way that's different than the classic psychedelics. Yeah, and, yeah. and I know uh, how important is that? I, I'm, it's more of a statement. Boy, is it important and for what we need today with what yeah. is going on in every aspect of our polarization, our me and them, uh, our the difference in uh, economic um, prosperity, the few have yeah. so much, yeah. the and of course the environment probably the biggest issue of all, and uh, you know to survive I think uh, this comes from something you might have said to uh, what we need to survive is a sense of what we have in common not what our differences are. And this, yeah. you know, an MDMA is, a, uh, of course, a perfect um, substance to allow us in a visceral way to understand that. Of course, it, ha it can't, I mean, you're using, you are doing all of this work in controlled settings, uh, but even people who are doing it because they want to look inside themselves for whatever reason, they need to have some set and setting. And I think you can go yeah. back to Tim and, and uh, Richard Alpert back then, and, and all of their comments are very appropriate and for people to yeah. take into regard. But I, I there, just because we're getting close to the end here, um, and I, I just want to, there's something that I found, um, and I'm not sure who, uh, I, I can't remember who, th who came up with this, the theory of causal indifference. Oh, yes. Please yes, do uh, mention that because it's very important, I, I think. Okay, great. Yeah, that was W.T. Stace. W.T. So, Stace. Yeah, S-T-A-C-E. Uh-huh, okay. And so he was one of the scholars of religion that uh, Walter Pankey um, evaluated when he was developing this questionnaire of what the mystical experience really is. And what the theory of causal indifference is, and, uh, and then I'll relate that to the PTSD research that we're doing now, which is that you can't tell the validity of a mystical experience by its cause. So some people would say that they had a mystical experience in church. Other people 
walking in nature. Other people while they're flagellating themselves or other people while they're fasting or other people while they took LSD or other people while they're just um, gratuitous grace, they call it, just comes over people. That the validity and the depth of the mystical experience is independent of the cause. And that's really important because really? certain kind of religious traditions would say that you, you, the only valid religious experience you have is in church, in our service. And that that's how you tell that, that and it's only with certain specific symbol systems and that any kind of religious experience that you might have is mediated by Muhammad. That's not valid unless it's mediated by Jesus or Moses or hmm. anything like that. So the theory of causal indifference has another correlate, which is that you really tell not by the cause, but by the fruits so that people can describe all sorts of things that sound very mystical. But how much of that is words and how much of that was an experience that they really felt throughout their depths of their being? And you tell that by their behavior afterwards, right. by the long-term right. follow-up. So what we've discovered in our PTSD research, and this is uh, somewhat reflective, is that once, you know, we, we started out by working with women survivors of childhood sexual abuse who had PTSD an average of over 19 years. We've since gone to work with veterans who have war-related PTSD. We've done work with people who've had workplace accidents. And what we've now discovered is that our treatment works the same regardless of the cause of PTSD. Whatever, once you have, you know, people get PTSD from uh, being operated on for cancer or, or hospitals or any number of different things. Mm -hmm. But once you've got it, your um, brain has changed in a certain way. You're more emotionally reactive. You're more fearful that the, um, the cause of PTSD is um, irrelevant to the treatment that we, we give. Right. And so I, I, I see sort of a parallel to that, to the theory of causal indifference. Yeah. And I think it's important for people to understand it's uh, aside from, of course, the work that you're doing with people who are in fear of death, through tremendous illness, through PTSD, uh, through addiction, and all of all of the um, different topics that you would address for people who are just naturally trying to find out who they are. It is not necessary to take a psychedelic on one hand. Uh, there are, uh, as, as the theory of causal indifference, uh, in my case, the first uh, incidence with me of a mystical experience was, uh, I've said this so many times over these podcasts, but it is so real for me, was with John Coltrane live in a club. Wow. And he did... Um, my favorite things. I don't know if you've ever heard it, yeah, but yeah, um, do, yeah. but it set me off into this experience that I had never had before. I was maybe 16 years old, 17 years old. And so I very well know that that's a, you know, very true. At the same time, I, as I said earlier, without my, uh, I could not have been with that being and in, in without, uh, when you were with this being, Neem Karoli Baba, you were out of time and space. I would not have been able to have any, even fathoming, uh, an understanding of what that is without acid, 
without psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't want to dismiss it in my experience. It was tremendously important. But I do want to say to everybody, this experience is not only attainable, obviously, through psychedelics. That's a little bit of a disclaimer, maybe, but it's true. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. you've done all this work, and I think you know it yeah. well. Yeah, I, I told you. And I think that, that would... Um... Uh, I would like to sort of add one other um, counterpoint to that, which is that there's now a coming together of the uh, spiritual traditions of Zen and uh, certain kind of uh, Roman Catholic monks and others with psychedelics again. Mm. So they've sort of been seen as two different paths. And, and even your um, framing of it is that you could have these initial experiences with psychedelics you know, and that opened you up, but, that, but then you, you know, don't, don't need them, or the implication could be that you don't need them anymore. And for many people, they don't. But, right. but what I want to say is that a lot, there's a study now that uh, Vanya Palmer's um, has coordinated with uh, lifelong Zen meditators in Switzerland. Before they, um, they go to a meditation retreat, they go to uh, the University of Zurich and get brain scans. Then they go to a, um, a seven-day meditation retreat during which they either get a, um, a placebo or psilocybin in a meditative setting. Mm. And then afterwards they go back to the, get brain scans and they're tracked for how does it impact their meditation practice? And what does it do in terms of, um, uh, altruism and, um, compassion and other attributes that we think would flow from caring more for others. And so what people are reporting is that, and many of these are people that had early inspirations with psychedelics, then gave it up to do, you know, lifelong meditation. Mm -hmm. Finding now that in the end of life, you could say that psychedelics are proving to be useful yet again, and that it's helping deepen their meditation practice. And so I think what we're seeing is not so much this either or bifurcation mm. that was created by this social backlash, but there's now a recognition that um, psychedelics can be part of a, a have, and have different roles throughout a lifespan. Hmm. Even That's for people that have given it up, you know, for right. decades, right. decades. And yeah, you're describing many of uh, my milieu, basically. Yeah. yeah. So very yeah. interesting. Amazing. So great to talk to you, Rick. Yeah. Oh, my. Uh, so uh, now people, uh, give uh, Rick, give a couple of, uh, or at least a main uh, URL so people can get oh, in touch okay. with your work. Okay. Maps, M-A-P-S, maps.org. And the basic idea is that MAPS is a nonprofit psychedelic and medical marijuana pharmaceutical company. And we're trying to develop psychedelics and marijuana through the FDA to make them legally available. Right. And our goal is not just, you know, to medicalize these. I think that people should have um, access to them legally, not just even in religious use, but for personal spiritual growth. And so eventually we want to move towards a post-prohibition world where we have learned how to incorporate these experiences, because I think we really need, you know, hundreds of millions of people to evolve to the point where they really know that we're all in it together and that they don't demonize the other. And that I think psychedelics can play a role. They're totally not essential. Um, for me, I don't know. Um, if I would have had a lot of these experiences, I don't think I would have without psychedelics, but I acknowledge that there's a lot of other ways to do it. But I do think that um, for us in our current cultural context, medicine is 
kind of an opening door. So that's where MAPS is focused as a pharmaceutical company, and we do it all through donations. So if anybody wants to go to maps.org, we're a 501c3, and we're also at this expanding phase from completing uh, about 15 years of what's called phase two pilot studies with MDMA for PTSD, and we're moving towards phase three. So we need a lot more resources, and uh, we want to partner with as many people as are interested in doing so. Wonderful. So go to maps.org, everybody. And uh, there's many of you who are listening out there that I'm sure are directly connecting with everything that's been said by Rick in this uh, wonderful podcast. So help out where you can. And Rick, uh, want to do this again? We have yeah. to. Get, you know, it'd be fun to do. We should get. Uh, we'll, we should do a Skype and Skype in Ramdas and and, that would and be have a chat. I'm gonna. That, we'll talk to him. I'm sure he'd yeah. love to do that. He just. Yeah, he just had a, a session. Oh, last fall, I believe, a bunch of different people that I'm sure you're quite well acquainted with came to his house and they did a little bit of a seminar. Uh, so uh, yeah, it would be a fun thing. So yeah, um, can I add just one thing? Yes. Which is uh, just in terms of sort of um, credibility building or so. Um, I, I just want to say that, um, you know, I have uh, one stream. I'm trained by Stan Groff. I'm a certified holotropic breathwork practitioner and have sort of studied and um, done a lot of work with him with uh, since 1972. But the other is because there was so much um, political obstruction of psychedelic research, um, I veered off and um, have a master's and a PhD from Harvard, from the Kennedy School of Government. Mm -hmm. And that's where I studied the regulation of the medical use of psychedelics and marijuana. Right. So those are the sort of two streams, again, of the personal spiritual growth and therapy and politics. Mm. And, and that's how it's come together that's for me. That's great. Fantastic. Thank you, Rick and everybody. This is Mind Rolling. And you can find us on the MindPod Network. Go to MindPod Net, mindpodnetwork.com. Of course, you'll, you've got everybody there. Ram Das, Krishna Das, Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Lama Surya Das, uh, and Joseph Goldstein, and on and on and on. And Rick... We're going to do it again. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you.